Hello, I'm Dustin Messer, a Kyperion Commentary Contributor and your host for today's episode. Today we'll be talking with Michael Goheen. Dr. Goheen directs the Missional Training Center in Phoenix, Arizona and serves as Professor professor of Missional Theology at my alma mater, Covenant Theological Seminary. He's the author of some 10 books, including the forthcoming volume on Leslie Newbigin's Missionary Ecclesiology called The Church and Its Vocation, and he is here to talk with us about it. Dr. Goheen, thank you for being with us. Glad to be here. Uh, you know, Dr. Goheen, it struck me as I was reading your book, there are some theologians whose thought is just so tied to their biography that really to understand their biography is to understand their thought and vice versa. I think of like Dietrich Bonhoeffer and Martin Luther, and it strikes me that Leslie Newbigin somebody like that, whose life from being a Presbyterian minister to a bishop uh, not the most average story in the world is so tied to his eventual thinking and sort of missional theology. Would you just tell us a little bit about who Newbigin was as a missionary and as a man? Yeah, you know, that's really true. Uh, someone said that uh, his uh, thought, his life was unparalleled. And uh, the reason they said that was because he had the experience, uh, the breadth of experience that very few people ever have. Um, he was a missionary in India for 40 years. He got inside the Tamil culture as well as the Tamil language in ways that uh, very few people ever did. Matter of fact, some people believed he understood the culture as well as the uh, language even better than a lot of Tamil speakers and people that were uh, part of the Tamil culture. And he was there for 40 years, and that gave him a new and fresh set of eyes, I think, to be able to see Western culture. But his experience went everywhere from evangelizing lepers and cave dwellers that had never been touched by Western culture to being the bishop of one of the most powerful uh, and big cities in all of India. And to top that off, for a number of years, he was uh, played a prominent role in the World Council of Churches and traveled uh, around the world and was able to see the church in Latin America, the church in Africa. He certainly saw much of the church in Asia. And so to when you look at his, minis- uh, well, his missionary experience as well as the breadth of his geographical experience, it certainly is true what that author said, that his experience has been scarcely paralleled. Hmm. And this book you wrote on Newbegin's missionary ecclesiology is, of course, it is it opens up light. And to Newbegin, you've spent a lot of time thinking on Newbegin. But it seems to me as I read it, it's an important book just in its own right. Even if someone has never heard of Newbegin and they're just trying to figure out how to be a faithful pastor in our cult, current cultural moment, it's just such a helpful map of not just Newbegin, but of the West and the church's role in uh, in the mission of God. So I wonder if you'd just say something about your first encounter with Newbegin. And I know this book has long roots in your own life, in your dissertation. Uh, why did you decide to write this book? Well, I was a church planter. I started off uh, my professional life as a church planter with the PCA. And during that time, I started to struggle with the nature of the church, and uh, it seemed that the two options I had was a very outdated kind of view of the church that came from the 17th century confessions, or um, 
understanding of the church that was shaped by sociological trends, especially the church growth movement. And I was very dissatisfied with those two ecclesiologies. And as I struggled with the nature of the church, I came upon Newbegin's uh, Foolishness to the Greeks. And I remember devouring that book, especially the first 20 or 30 pages, just uh, impacted me a great deal. And it was around the, it was, I was already involved, um, engaged in my PhD work, and I was doing PhD work on Herman Bovink and, and systematic theology. And when I read this by Newbegin, I was, uh, I was intrigued. Where did this view of the church come from? Uh, who is this man anyway? Um, I actually ended up with his book because I was teaching a worldview course, and somebody recommended this would be a good book for teaching Reformed worldview. And so I ended up reading this book and being uh, tremendously impacted by it and trying to say, where, where did he get this ecclesiology? Where is this coming from? And I started realizing it not only came from his experience, but it came from a, a long missionary tradition. And so that's where what it all goes back to. It goes back to uh, this incredibly a view of the church that can be on the one hand incredibly biblical which is what the 17th century confessions were trying to articulate but also can be very um, relevant and contextual what the uh, church growth tradition was trying to articulate so in many ways it goes back to my uh, those those days and at the time I wanted to write a dissertation on uh, the church in western culture and sort of Launch, uh, launched my dissertation with a chapter on Newbegin. But it was my wife who said to me, you know, you'll probably learn far more from Newbegin and his life than you'll ever learn uh, by doing a, a topical dissertation. And I listened to her, and I'm sure glad I did, because the reality is, in getting to know him, as well as getting to know his thought, was really something that uh, was challenging to my own life. Hmm. And the book is called, uh, the subtitle is Leslie Newbegin's Missionary Ecclesiology. And I think it might be helpful, sort of one entryway into this book, and I think your thought generally, might be in defining two different terms. So I wonder if you'd just define uh, these two terms and maybe tell us uh, a different way that we've understood these terms. So one is mission. So if you'd start off just saying something about what you mean by mission, and then maybe what we might misunderstand when we think of mission. And then after that, I'll ask you about the word election, how, how we should understand that word. So first of all, what is, uh, what is the mission of God and what is our mission? How would you define mission? Hmm, that's good. Uh, the word mission, of course, is, uh, is simply a Latin word. It comes from the Latin word, uh, which means to send. And so really, it's, it's like the word Trinity or the word providence. It's, it's a theological word, and it can either be useful or not, depending on what it conveys. And the word mission was first used by um, the Jesuits, uh, I think in the 17th, 16th century. And they were using it to talk about getting people into Mother Church, including the rascally Protestants, which had recently left the fold. And so the word mission was about uh, going out, and it had to do with uh, not only the Protestants, but the Jesuits were went to countries all over the world. 
So it, it immediately was a word that defined the church's outward movement, and it primarily was a geographical movement that moved from Europe to other places in the world, and then soon from places like the United States and other Western countries to other places in the world. And that's how the word was defined. Um, by the 19th century, this word had been embraced widely by Protestants. Matter of fact, one author says that it had become a Protestant orthodoxy. And it had to do with taking the good news to people that had never heard of it overseas, uh, in other parts of the world, uh, people that had no exposure to the gospel. And what began to happen was a number of things. I can't, it's a, it's a very complicated history, but in the 20th century, it became evident more and more clearly that Western culture was not Christian. The church in the West was becoming, it was deeply in trouble. Uh, the church in the non-Western world, in the Eastern and Southern Hemisphere, was growing very fast. And so to speak of a, a mission field as outside the West and the home base as the West just didn't make sense anymore. And so there's a struggle with uh, this terminology, and um, the, the, the terminology was kept because it was a fairly positive language to describe the church's outward movement, if you want, its orientation to the world. And it was redefined in the middle part of the 20th century in this way, that uh, with an understanding of the Bible as one story that told the story of God's redemptive mission in the world— and uh, they use the word of God's mission. I'm not tied to that word, but it's a, it's terminology that has become common. Um, but it's speaking of the redemptive historical nature of Scripture, that God acts in history, and that uh, the goal of that is to renew and to restore the whole creation and the whole of human life. Uh, that vision of the Missio Dei as God's action in the world, especially centered in Jesus Christ, was seen as the context in which we're to understand the biblical story. I'm sorry, the, the biblical vocation of God's people. And so mission then was redefined as the vocation of God's people in that story, specifically with respect to its calling um, and its orientation to the world. And what we see in the biblical story is right from the beginning, God's people were blessed to be a blessing. That is, they were the, the blessing of creation was restored to them. Uh, they were renewed, and the, the point was not simply to be blessed, but also to be a channel uh, of that blessing to others. And so from the beginning, God's people have been missional in that sense of playing a role in which they are to be a picture of the uh, new humanity, a picture of where God is taking history, and be, but not to be simply a picture of that for themselves, but to be a picture of for the sake of the world. So when I speak of a, a missional ecclesiology, or to use the older terminology of Newbie, a missionary ecclesiology, he's talking about the role of God's people, uh, the vocation in the biblical story, to manifest uh, in their lives and words and deeds uh, the kingdom of God or the goal of universal history. So there's a sense in which the word mission defines all of life. All of life is mission in the sense that the whole of our lives um, are a picture and a preview of the kingdom. The whole of our lives are a picture of the new humanity and what life looks like when it's restored and renewed in Jesus Christ. So the word mission is, has really changed its meaning. And, you know, whether 
it's, it's always a big question whether to maintain theological terminology that's not biblical. We all do it. Uh, we all use it. And it's, the question is, what is the most helpful language? And at this point, I think the word mission is a very positive word and uh, still can be used very helpfully to show that if God's people are simply living for themselves and salvation is something that they are enjoying for themselves, they're misunderstanding their role and vocation in God's story. Okay, so that's that's really helpful, defining mission, as you say, an extra biblical word. Let's turn to a very biblical word. In fact, I remember meeting a very pretty girl in college who wound up being my wife, and she was wearing a shirt that said Presbyterian on it, and I'd never met a Presbyterian, and I asked uh, a friend, what is a Presbyterian? And he said, well, they believe in election and we don't. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. but of course, election is a very biblical word. And yet people fight over what it means. And oftentimes those of us in the reform tradition can have sort of an emaciated, narrow view of what election is. So would you help us think through what is election and specifically how does it fit within sort of place us as elected individuals in the mission of God? Yeah, this is a, this is a tough one. Um, as a matter of fact, uh, about uh, seven eight years ago, somebody asked to do a, a THM with me, and uh, um, I asked them what topic they wanted to write on, and they said they wanted to talk about a missional understanding of election. So I said, okay, good. I'll take you on as a student. You can write a dissertation if you solve all my problems and struggles with this doctrine, and. Uh, they wrote the dissertation and they didn't solve any of them. So um, I'm still struggling with it and it would be take a long time for me to articulate where I'm at. But maybe uh, let me let me just uh, share it this way. A traditional understanding of election has been maybe I can put it understood in a fourfold way. Uh, it's eternal. That is, it's God's choice before the foundation of the world. It's a choice of individuals. God chooses these individuals and not those. It's unto salvation. He chooses them so that they might know his salvation. And fourthly, therefore, election is something that speaks of privilege. It's a, it's a good thing to be chosen, if you will. But in my own understanding of the Bible, I started to realize that not only is there this eternal dimension of election, that it's also, in the Bible, a historical choice. It's not just eternal. It's historical. God chooses Abraham, and he, he chooses him at a specific point in history. Um, and he not only is there the election of individuals, more often than not, election is spoke of as, as the election of a community. Uh, Israel, Amos says, I have chosen you. And the whole notion of election has often been very much in terms of a community being chosen for a task. And that gets on to the next things. It's not only for salvation, but it's also blessed to be a blessing. It's also uh, election for mission. As a matter of fact, the first time election is used, as far as I know, is Genesis 18. And there we're told that God says to, uh, God says to Abraham, I have chosen you so that you may uh, instruct your family after you to walk in the way of the Lord so that I can fulfill the promises I've made. And the promises articulated in the verse before, that is that Abraham is to be a blessing to the nations. So it's not simply salva uh, salvation, it's also mission. And fourthly, it's not only privilege, but it's election under responsibility. I've often asked Reformed students, 
how many of them have heard a sermon on Amos 3 verse 2? And uh, very few have. Very few know what I'm talking about till they look it up. But Amos 3 verse 2 says, uh, Amos says, uh, and he's counteracting their misunderstanding of election. He says, Israel, you of all the nations of the earth have I chosen. Therefore, I will punish you. And so there, their election it involves responsibility. And if they've misunderstood their vocation and calling, it's going to be the covenant curse rather than blessing. And so my struggle has been for the last number of years is, okay, I, I believe that the uh, traditional and classical articulation of the doctrine of election can be helpful. I mean, it's right there in the Bible, every one of those things, eternal, individual, salvation, privilege. But then there's these other dimensions, historical, community, mission, responsibility, and how to bring those together has been my struggle. Now, people like Newbegin, and this is where I would depart from Newbegin personally, people of Newbegin have trashed a more classical view of election. And they've just wanted to stress the historical, the community, the mission, and responsibility. But it seems to me that um, Newbegin's own thought seems to dictate against that when he speaks of blessed to be a blessing. And so it seems to me we've got to struggle with a much bigger doctrine of election. I myself have come to some some conclusions by struggling with Ephesians 1, but I think it would probably be go too far afield to try to go into those. But I think what we need to do is, is, is recover some of these dimensions of election uh, that have been lost with a more traditional yeah. doctrine. Well, let me add, preface this next question, which will... We'll still tie into this with this quote you uh, you give in your book from Newbegin. So this is uh, you quoting Newbegin here. It is impossible to stress too strongly that the beginning of mission is not an action of ours, but the presence of a new reality, the presence of the spirit and power. So let me ask you this question, because I think some people who are more critical of Newbegin missional theology, maybe even just you would say, okay, so God has this mission, and no doubt it is large and includes, it's expansive, it's extensive with creation and so forth. But what they might say is our election, uh, our mission, our vocation, the thing which we are called to do is much more res- much more restricted. And as I read that from Newbegin, that automatically seems to be pushing back on that criticism to, to say you or Newbegin are certainly not saying that our mission is identical with God's mission. The spirit is about broader things than we are. And yet you would say, I I think if I'm reading your book correctly, we should view our mission as much broader than we typically think of mission as, as simply evangelism or the administration of the sacraments or something like that. So would you say something about, you've already said define in defining mission, how big God's mission is. What is the vocation of the church? What is our mission in the world, specifically in relation to God's overarching mission to redeem creation? I would say first and foremost, the mission of God's people is a matter of being. That is, they're called to be the new humanity that manifests where all of creation is going where the history of the world is going and to be that in the midst of the, uh, in the midst of the world. I think right from the beginning, God says to Abraham, I'm going to bless you. He says to Israel, you're to be a holy nation and a kingdom that plays a priestly vocation of, of, 
of mediating God's uh, blessing to others. And there's a sense in which they are to be a display people, a picture of what God intended human life to look like in the midst of the world. And the reason that, um, that Israel fails is because they are in, in Adam and uh, their sin is, is, the, is a problem, as Paul points out in Romans 1 uh, through 4, uh, that Israel's problem is that they're in Adam and, they're, and their sin is keeping them from being able to manifest this new, new humanity in the midst of the world. And so what Newbegin is saying in that particular quote is, with the death and resurrection of Jesus, with his death, uh, sin is defeated, with his resurrection, the new creation begins, and with the outpouring of the Spirit, now... Uh, the people of God can be what they always were meant to be, but could not be. That is, with the empowering work of the Spirit, they can be a preview and a picture of the renewing work of God in the midst of the world. And so mission then, as it participates in God's mission, is to manifest, in first of all, in their being, in their lives, what it means to uh, be a good news people. So, for example, I like to use the uh, imagery of a movie preview. Now, a movie preview is meant to be actual footage of a movie, which is meant to invite people to come and view that movie when it ultimately comes out. And so the people of God are be to be a kingdom preview. That is, there to be actual footage of what the kingdom of God looks like, what the new creation, what the new humanity looks like, uh, to invite people to become part of that. Now, with the coming of the Spirit enabling us to be what we're meant to be, that is, the new humanity across the whole of creational life, it also means that our witness is to be one of words and deeds, uh, evangelism, which invites people into that new reality, and deeds, which demonstrate uh, that reality in a very uh, kind of intentional way. And so uh, I think the mission is as broad as human life in the sense that we make known the good news with the whole of our lives. But Nubian makes a very, very important distinction here that I found incredibly helpful. He distinguishes between mission as dimension and mission as intention. And what he means by that is uh, my marriage may... Uh, be a picture, or hopefully is a picture and a preview of what's coming in the new creation about the way human beings ought to live with one another in self-sacrificing love. However, um, my marriage is not meant to be intentionally be an evangelistic tool. It, it is an end in itself. It's what God has given me in, in, in creation. But there are intentional acts like evangelism and like missions and church planning. There's certain intentional activities that we engage in uh, to call people to follow, to trust in and follow Jesus Christ. And so there's a dimension of mission to the whole of our lives. Every part of our lives is showing forth the good news that in Christ and by the Spirit, all of human life is being renewed and restored and redeemed. Um, but that doesn't mean that every aspect of our lives is intentionally missionary. Uh, rather, there are certain, again, as I said, certain words and deeds that may be intentionally missionary, intentionally reaching out to call people to follow Christ. Wonderful. And you've been so generous with your time. I have two more questions. Uh, this question is, you offer and sort of gesture towards lots of different ways that if the church in the West, if my particular church in Dallas, Texas were to adopt a more missionary ecclesiology and missionary posture uh, towards her culture, 
it should affect some really concrete things. And so I'm just going to ask you about one of them, because I think maybe seeing how you think this through will uh, will be insightful and help us in, in other areas as well. And, and that's the area of theological education, something that you've given your life towards. And you talk about an old version of theological education. I think you call it the bank model, or maybe Newbigin called it the bank model. And then another model, which is maybe more of a medical um more of a medical model or business model, more of an apprenticeship model. So I wonder if you just say how this missionary ecclesiology would uh, affect theological education, specifically in America. Yeah. Um, Newbegin was, uh, was a part of a, something that took place in the sixties, seventies and eighties. He wasn't, he didn't play a huge role. Um, that's why you only see a very small portion of the book devoted to that. Uh, there were others, like my professor at Westminster, Harvey Kahn, played a, a bigger role from the evangelical side. And David Bosch has written more about this. But in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, when they were starting to see that mission is not simply a few activities on the edge of the church's life, but, but to define the very nature of the church, huge questions started to be asked about theological education. And it started in the 60s with the ecumenical movement, but by the 70s and 80s, the the evangelicals had got on board, and there was an explosion of literature that came out of that, unfortunately, that never really got implemented too much. But it was a literature that was wrestling with this question. And what we're doing here at MTC in Phoenix is trying to go back to people like Newbegin and Kahn and David Bosch and a host of other authors and their reflections on how mission should shape theological education. And maybe I could say it in the way that uh, one author, one evangelical author said, he said, when you rethink it, you rethink it from four different th- in four different areas. One in terms of pedagogy, what is the best way to train people? And that's where you're talking here about more of an apprentice model. Um, and uh, there's other, many other dimensions of the pedagogy. Uh, what's the best way to train ministers pedagogically? A second thing had to do with curriculum. How would this affect our curriculum? How would this reshape biblical studies? How would this reshape systematic theology? How would this shape reshape church history and practical theology? What areas are missing? For example, one of the things that they made a strong point of, and uh, this is this point was also made by a number of seminaries in the in the uh, southern and eastern hemisphere is that the area of cultural studies is almost totally absent in much uh, theological education. And yet some third world seminaries at the time said, you know, we really need about half of our curriculum devoted to theological studies, meaning those other four areas, and half of our time devoted to cultural studies. And the reason we got to study cultural studies is to make sure that the first half, that is the theological studies, don't get absorbed into the idolatry of our culture as so often happens. And so the curriculum was wrestling with how to take traditional subjects and how mission begins to affect them. But it also asked, raises the questions, what's missing in theological education? So that's what curriculum is about. The third thing has to do with structures. We've basically taken on a university model uh, in our structures and it's uh, alienated it from the church. Um, and the question is, how can it be much more closely associated with the church um, and where you know, Newbegin actually says that theological education cannot be handed out? Uh, the church must take responsibility itself for theological education. And then the fourth area has to do with assignments and evaluation. 
how are we evaluating whether we're doing the job and what kind of assignments really help ministers? Does writing academic papers and spitting stuff back on an exam, is that really the best way to evaluate? Are those really the best ways to help people get hold of what they need to be pastors? And so Newbegin struggled with this because he had to train a lot of pastors, many of whom couldn't even read. And um, so he said once that first job I've got to do in training these pastors is to teach them how to read. And so how do we train pastors? I mean, we're struggling with this in Phoenix. We have some people who maybe, uh, you know, more ethnic pastors who don't have the same academic ability, or maybe they have the same academic ability, but not in English. And the question is, how do we train them? Because they're very good pastors and they need to be trained. So he wrestled hard with what mission would look like pedagogically, curricularly, uh, structurally, but also in terms of evaluation and assignments. And I, sh- I could go on because this has been my life for the last seven years, but I think that kind of summarizes and nails what was important about Absolutely. a lot of the writing. And you're not, uh, you say this is your life's work. Uh, this book, you say, is the first of two books. This one dealing with Leslie Newbigin himself, but there's another book that has been written or is being written on the legacy of Newbigin and missional theology. Some of the characters you just mentioned, Harvey Kahn and Bosch and others. Uh, what can we look for in that book? Well, um, this started off, uh, this book came out of that because um, my, I'm writing with a colleague here, um, Tim Sheridan. Uh, Tim did his PhD work uh, looking at uh, the emerging, emergent, and missional church movements in North America. And both of us were concerned that a whole lot of Newbegin has been left out and that um, there's some very interesting historical reasons for that, but that a whole lot of Newbegin has been left out in much of the missional thinking that has uh, has uh, taken place since 1998 and the the publishing of Missional Church book, uh, edited by Daryl Guder. And our concern was that many people are using the word missional. They've read very little of Newbegin, knew what he meant by it. And so what we wanted to do was not so much a theological thesis as a historical thesis. This is what Newbegin believed. And um, this is what has flown from Newbegin. And our concern was to show that there's a whole lot of things that Newbegin believed about Mitchell Church that simply are not even being discussed at all. And there's a lot of stuff that's in, in, in contradiction to Newbegin in many ways that um, is uh, being passed off as Newbegin. And so that was our desire to write that historical book. We wanted to look at missional church, emerging church, emergent church. Uh, Keller's Deep Church, uh, I mean, Center Church, and then Deep Church. And we wanted to sort of analyze some of these, which are in some ways indebted to Newbegin, and uh, just say, okay, uh, here's where there's some uh, real continuity with what Newbegin wrote. Uh, Here's where there's some discontinuity, and here's the kinds of stuff that's missing. So what we're going to do in that second book is in the first two chapters, place Newbegin in a much bigger historical framework of missional church, and we're going to see that movement place Newbegin in that context, his understanding, to see how this missional church discussion was revived and how it's begun to shape other uh, uh, missional, emerging, etc. church movements, and then to uh, conclude by asking the question, what are what are some of the elements of Newbegin's missionary ecclesiology that are missing in our discussion that we need to retrieve and to recover? This book, The Church and Its Vocation 
will be out in just a couple of weeks by Baker Books. Dr. Goheen, thank you so much for giving us your time today. You're welcome. Thank you very much, Richard.